It's uh, wonderful to be with all of you as well and uh, to have the opportunity to talk a little bit in this morning session about the church. And I, I want to talk on a foundational level. I don't want um, anyone to miss what I'm going to say because if you don't get the foundation right, it's very easy to go astray. And the, the church is frankly in an identity crisis today, here and around the world, shifting styles, changing methods, um, multiple options uh, regarding how one preaches, naive theologies, um, all kinds of error and all kinds of foolishness, as you well know, and it, it arises out of a failure to understand the biblical definition of the church. A helpful way to think about the church biblically is to consider this one foundational reality. The church is the kingdom of God. The church is the kingdom of God. That is fundamental and that is foundational. It is the present form of the kingdom of God. And God rules over His kingdom. And He mediates that rule in the church through His Son by His Spirit. The kingdom of God at any point in time in redemptive history is the sphere where God rules. The sphere where God rules. I'm not talking about the universal kingdom. I'm not talking about His universal sovereignty. I'm not talking about His eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. But the kingdom that God rules over in human history in any form must submit itself to His sovereign authority. If you will, turn to Colossians with me, and I just want to set this in your mind, Colossians 1. We can pick it up at verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son." in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the prototokos, the premier one of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. We can stop there. That's enough to make the point. This is God's church over which Christ is the ruling head and the ruling authority. It is the kingdom of God, ruled by God's beloved Son, characterized by these things which we have just read. 
we are to serve this church and to serve in this church according to the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We are to please Him in all respects. We are to bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. We are all along to be strengthened with divine power, giving thanks to the Father, and it goes on and on and on. Everything goes back to God. Everything goes back to the Father, goes back to the Son. This is His kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, it is identified as the kingdom of those who are Christ's. The kingdom of those who are Christ's. For me, this is so foundational and it keeps everything crystal clear to understand that this is a monarchy and I am not the king. I am subservient to the king. The true church to whom we are called as shepherds and overseers and leaders and preachers and teachers is the kingdom of God. As a pastor, I am both confined by and motivated by that reality. It exercises complete control over my entire life and ministry. I am not defined or confined or motivated or driven by any preference of the culture. It's irrelevant to me. I don't care about polls. I don't care about demographics. I don't care about surveys. In fact, surveys are dangerous. In effect, they create a, a new kind of Christianity. I don't care about expectations. I don't care about psychology. I don't care about sociology. I only care that I serve the King. What sets the center and circumference of ministry is what the King has said about His church the realm of His rule. I've never wavered in my understanding of the church as the kingdom of the Lord, but through the years it has grown and been more and more refined. So I want you to think it through a little bit with me this morning. I think there are five foundational doctrines, five foundational doctrines in understanding the church as the kingdom of God. And uh, we'll do a little bit of a Bible study, so you can either write these things down. Many of these passages will be familiar to you, and we don't have time to go over all five of these by any means, but I want to introduce them to you. These are the five pillars that I go back to again and again and again in understanding what is foundational to my ministry with regard to the church as the kingdom of God. The first is the church and election. The church and election, or the kingdom and sovereignty. Mark, a few moments ago, quoted essentially from Matthew 16, 18, where our Lord said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We're familiar with that. The church is being built by Christ. Years ago, a reporter asked me, do you have a desire to build the church? I said, absolutely not. I don't want to compete with the Lord. I have no desire to build the church. I have desire only to serve the one who will build his own church. 
No one comes to the Father, Jesus said in John, no one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. We all understand the utter significance of that realization that you serve a king and a kingdom over which the king rules with absolute and utter sovereignty. Listen to John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Verse 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. This is a foundational reality of understanding the doctrine of election. The Father is in the world seeking a bride for His Son. He has chosen before the foundation of the world those who will make up that bride. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. That is why Paul in Ephesians says we were predestined according to the predetermined will of God. We are elect. We are chosen. A verse you might not think about in this context is at the beginning of Paul's letter to Titus. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. That's how he viewed his ministry. He was a messenger to bring the gospel to those chosen by God so they could hear and believe. For the faith of those chosen of God. Chosen before the foundation of the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who saved us, that is the power of God who saved us, called us with a holy calling, that's an effectual calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus before time began, literally. Our salvation was granted before time began. God rules sovereignly over His kingdom by predetermining those who will be a part of that kingdom, drawing them to Himself, and giving them collectively as a bride to His Son. Romans 8 says that whoever the Lord chose, He justified, and whoever He justified, He glorifies. This is an incredibly encouraging reality. If you Years ago, in a shepherd's conference, I went through the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. I just remind you a little bit of what our Lord says when He makes reference to His own. John 17, 9, He's praying, and He says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Every converted person is a love gift from the Father to the Son, chosen before the foundation of the world. And our Lord saw them as such, the ones you have given me, in verse 9. In verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, as He anticipates His ascension, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. You gave them, 
Three times, you gave them, you gave them, you gave them, I keep them. Down in verse 24 of that same chapter, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Four times, he says, those who are mine, you gave me. Every redeemed person is a love gift from the Father to the Son. That is how we are to understand the doctrine of election. It is God the Father in perfect and eternal love granting what His love demands, a gift to the object of His love, which is His Son, and He determines to give Him a redeemed humanity, which redeemed humanity He chooses before time began and chooses them to be in Christ. We are in Christ from before the foundation of the world, chosen in Him before time began. I love what the Apostle Paul says when he talks about the dead in Christ rising. Even those who are dead are dead in Christ. From eternity to eternity, we are in Christ. God is timeless, and so He has always seen His own in His Son. We're dealing then with an invincible purpose. The purpose of God will be fulfilled. The, the, the response that I have to that is essentially the response of the Apostle Paul, and I think this is, this is where you will be greatly encouraged if you think about it. Chapter 2 of uh, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I found no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. And then this, he was struggling. He says, Later, chapter 7, I had no rest in my spirit. I was troubled inside, troubled outside. That certainly happens to people in ministry. But verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We win. The end is already written. The triumph is in Christ. Christ triumphed at the cross. When He said, it is finished... It wasn't a potential redemption. It was an actual redemption. God always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us. Imagine this, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Everywhere we go as those who preach the gospel, we take the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death the other an aroma from life to life, who is adequate for such things? It's astonishing to think about how significant you are if you preach the gospel. You compound judgment for those who reject, and you are the agent of eternal blessing for those who believe. We win. Christ wins. Christ triumphs. We have to look at the church with that perspective, the kingdom and the sovereign king who rules over it will accomplish his purpose. 
Nothing I do is going to change the end result. It's not going to be cleverness on my part that gets some non-elect into the kingdom. If I thought that my preaching was the determining reality of someone's salvation, I'd be paralyzed with fear. That is already determined. You understand that, and you can live in joy in any circumstance. The privilege that we have is just to wear the uniform and to march in the triumph. The triumph is already won. The Lord is gathering His bride for His Son. The second thing that you need to think about when you think about the church and foundational reality is the church and identification. The church and identification. Or the kingdom and substitution, if you want to look at it another way. Election is a primary foundation in understanding the church, and so is substitution. And we all understand what I'm saying by that, that the essence of the gospel is that our sins are placed on Christ, who becomes our substitute in His death, and His righteousness is placed on us. This is essentially what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the exchange. He takes our sin and pays the penalty in full, and God gives us His righteousness and covers us with that. That is part and parcel, of course, of the heart of the gospel preaching of the apostles. It comes really clear at the very beginning of our Lord's instruction about the church, go back to Matthew 18, if you will. Matthew 18, we have the first instruction regarding the church. But the context that is at the beginning of the chapter is, is very interesting. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you're Converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the sphere of salvation. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, that, that is the introduction to what it means to be one with Christ. I'm talking about identification. We are, we are one with Christ, receiving one of those who believes in me is receiving me. And that is why to cause one of these little ones to, who believe in me, and that's the definition of these little ones. These aren't children. These are believers who come as children with nothing to offer, all of grace. They're saved. And he goes on to talk about woe to those who cause such to stumble. But down in verse 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is a remarkable statement. Our Lord is simply saying this. The angels of heaven have their eyes on the Father, watching for some expression from His glorious manifestation, whatever that might be, that indicates his concern over how one of his own is being treated. 
That, that is an, really a serious, perhaps the most serious reality in the life of the church as we live with one another, that the Father is watching His own to see if anything happening to them would call for angelic intervention. Because they are His. How you treat another believer is how you treat Christ Himself, because He is one with His people. Paul makes much of this, we're in Christ, Christ is in us. I went through that extensively in a series uh, I did on the book of Galatians recently. So when we're dealing with the people in the church, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're still in Colossians 1, it's on the opposite page. Um, a, a couple, one book back. Um, the book of Ephesians, this set the course for my ministry many years ago. Ephesians chapter 4. He gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The whole objective of the ministry to the saints, which is what we do in the church, is to maximize Christ in them. Christ is in them. Christ has taken up residence. The Spirit of Christ is in them. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his, Romans 8 says. So all believers possess Christ, the, the living Christ. Our responsibility in ministering to them is to recognize how precious they are, that they are one with Christ who is dwelling in them, and do everything we can to acknowledge the glory of that reality and to cultivate in the life of that believer the removal of those things that are barriers to the fullness of Christ being manifest in that life. That leads me to a third pillar that we have to recognize, and that is the church and purification, or the kingdom and sanctification. Sanctification is absolutely critical, and, and I'm, I'm running fast across a lot of these just to give you some hints that uh, you can examine further on your own. Peter says, be holy for I am holy, borrowing from Leviticus. Our responsibility is for the holiness of the people. Our Lord, back in the prayer that He taught His disciples, chapter 6 of Matthew you're familiar with this. Just a reminder. In Matthew 6 and verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is that going to happen? Where does heaven come down? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will in heaven? God's will in heaven, of course, is defined for us in every glimpse of heaven we have in Scripture, and that is that heaven is a place of holiness. Nothing is there but holiness. So when heaven comes down, you have a consuming reality of pursuing holiness that takes over the lives of people. That's only going to happen in the church of Jesus Christ. It ought to be the place where 
heaven comes down, where the saints are pursuing sanctification. And they need help. And that's why in Matthew 18, our Lord says, if you see your brother sin, what? You go to him. And if he doesn't listen, you go again with two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen and repent, you tell the whole church. And then if he still doesn't repent, you put him out of the church and treat him like an unbeliever because he well may be one. You don't want the sin that he's committing to infect the congregation. There are consequences to that. I was talking to Al Mohler about a week ago, and I was saying it's it's kind of interesting to see what's going on in the Southern Baptist churches with all these issues, all these issues of sexual abuse or whatever is going on, and um, his single comment was, that's what a hundred years without church discipline will get you. I don't know the reality of all of that, but you don't want a hundred years accumulated lack of church discipline. Because the Lord has made it clear, if someone sins, you go to that person. Now, that's going to mean that you're going to have to deal with your own life, right? Get the beam out of your own eye before you start picking a splinter out of somebody else's eye. I remember at Grace Church when it was clear to me we needed to do this, and I talked to a few pastors. This was in the first year or so that I was there, and they said, you can't do that. You'll empty that church. I've never seen anybody do that. I've never known anybody to do that. I've never heard of a church that did that. But I said, it's clear. It's not, it's not hard to understand. It's explicit. So we're, we need to do that because that's what Scripture says, and then we'll leave the results to the Lord. And uh, it didn't empty the church. It sanctified the saints. It raised the stakes and behavior and accountability and love and concern and care and purity. This is a congregation purchased with, with blood. And that's why we are told, like the Ephesian elders, to feed the flock of God and take the oversight. They're priceless. And sanctification is at the heart of pastoral duty. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, Paul says, this is just looking at a pastoral application of that. Verse 20, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality which they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Wow. I'm coming, and I'm not going to spare anyone who's sinning. If I find anything like strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, impurity, immorality, sensuality, I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going to deal with it the way we're commanded to deal with it before two or three witnesses will go through Matthew 18. Unity 
purity critical in the life of the church as well as dealing with heresy. A heretic, you rebuke a couple of times and then get rid of him. So to understand the church, you have to understand the doctrine of election. You have to understand the doctrine of identification. Christ is in His people and they are in Him. That is true in terms of their salvation. He is their substitute. He has taken their sin. They have then received His righteousness. You must understand how critical it is then for God on behalf of His people to have in place in His church sanctifying agents. And that's what pastors are. That's what leaders of the church are. How bizarre is it as we watch here in America an entire church implode in sin and a pastor running like, um, like those who were preyed upon by the sons of Sceva, naked and wounded through the city. And now confessions coming out almost every day from elders and pastors who did not pursue the purity of that church. That's, that's the basic responsibility, is to be guardians of the sanctification of God's people. There's a fourth pillar in understanding this foundation, and that is the church and revelation, or the kingdom and the scripture. I don't need to say much about that. I think we all get it. Preach the word, right? Preach the word instant in season and out of season. And I'll tell you this, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but you're either in it or out of it. So it has to mean all the time. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. I am a, a living illustration of what happens in a church when you do that. This very meeting today and all that is TMAI or all that is Grace Community Church or, or any other of the ministries that the Lord has given to us is all a product of just teaching the Word of God. For 50 years, standing in the same pulpit, opening up uh, probably three different Bibles over 50 years that I preached from, and just letting people know what the Word of God says. And it's amazing to see the work of the Word. If you haven't been over to Grace uh, Church, you'll, you'll, when you get over there, you're going to see all kinds of banners everywhere. They were celebrating the 50 years which is like a death sentence. Can you imagine listening to this, the same guy for 50 years? Give me a break. Um, but, but the signs all say the work of the Word, the work of the Word. The people get it. It's not the, it's not the fast track uh, to worldly success, but it's the right way to long-term spiritual impact. And the Word sows deep and grows deep and flourishes. We all get that. Study to show yourself approved or be diligent to be approved of God. A workman needing not to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. All of those injunctions are very familiar to us. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. All of those things define for us the role that Scripture plays. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is what? Profitable profitable for both the positive instruction and the negative rebuke. Nothing has the power of the Word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
alive, powerful. And the Lord has designed that by the preaching of the Word, the gospel is spread and the saints are edified. Pastoral duty then is to preach the Word, and as we read in 2 Corinthians 10, the Word, without even being mentioned there, smashes the fortifications in which sinners have found themselves to be imprisoned. When we assault the kingdom of darkness and the fortifications, the ideologies, the religions, the belief systems, the philosophies, when we assault them with the truth, they're smashed and every thought is brought captive to Christ. I've watched that for all these many, many years. And by the way, I just add a footnote to that. You are the worship leader if you're the preacher because worship is tied to a response to the truth. The deeper their understanding of the truth, the higher their worship. If they don't have a deep understanding of the truth, they can't have truly elevated worship. And so what you get is emotional stimulation on a superficial level. You are the worship leader. You inform them of those truths that lift their hearts in praise. So foundational to the church, again, is the understanding that you're dealing with the people who were chosen before the foundation of the world, too, that they are one with Christ their Savior, and they have to be treated as if they are Christ Himself because He comes to you in each one of them. That's why you don't look down on any of them. But on the other hand, you understand that the Lord's desire for them is that they become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which means you are committed to their sanctification which means that you're committed to your own as well. And all of this flows from the revelation of the Word of God. Preaching the Scripture accomplishes everything. And just a final pillar, the church and restoration, or the kingdom and the return of Christ. I don't like it today that so little is said about the coming of Christ. I don't think it's right to punt at that point. I don't think it's right to, to avoid the book of Revelation or eschatology. How could you do that when that's the point of the whole story? Christ, you say, is the theme of Scripture, yes, and we're happy to say Christ is anticipated uh, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the anticipation of Christ, and the gospel is the incarnation of Christ, and the book of Acts is the proclamation of Christ, and the epistles are the explanation of Christ. But the book of Revelation is the glorification of Christ. Can't stop short of that. That's where all of it is going. I love that statement about the Thessalonian church that they were waiting for the Son from heaven. I don't see that in the church today. People avoid eschatology because they think that there's a reasonable, a reasonable idea, they would say it's reasonable, that would indicate you can't be certain about it. I remember when I was in uh, Kazakhstan, uh, they asked me to come in at teach the New Testament in a week to 1,600 pastors from Central Asia in the first pastor's conference ever in Central Asia after 
the Soviet Union broke up. And I was about three days in, and the uh, leaders of the conference, and I was going about eight hours a day. It takes about three translators to do that because they don't know what I'm going to say, so it's harder on them. And by the third day, they said, when are you going to get to the good part? Which is a little surprising, I guess. But uh, they, I, I said, what do you mean the good part? They said, the, the future, the future. We, we, want, we want to know about the future. Well, you know, if you're standing in line to get a little piece of horse meat or a half, half a dozen eggs in a very difficult situation, you have very little. The, the hope of the glory to come is much brighter than it is if you're living in a materialistic culture. Um, and I said, well, what do you want me to talk about? They said, we want you to talk about the coming of Christ. So on Friday, I took the entire day and, and went through a whole eschatology. Uh, and I just walked them through the New Testament passages. And I had no idea what they believed. When it was all over, the leaders met with me at the end of the day and they said, we believe exactly what you believe. And I knew why. They hadn't been to a school They were just reading the Bible. I was talking about that. If some of you were there yesterday morning in, in the message in the morning, I was talking about the coming of the Lord for retribution and relief from Second Thessalonians. Our people need that. They need to know the future is settled. We need to have that living hope of an inheritance undefiled, unfading, reserved for us in heaven and that we are protected by the power of God through faith to the reception of that great inheritance. We need to get our eyes off this world and our affection set above. It's absolutely essential that the emphasis on the return of Christ be a part of preaching and teaching and leading the church. They need to know the future is secure. People are frightened in this culture. That's why suicide is so rampant. And there are all kinds of fantasy substitutes for reality. Movies are more fantasy now than they've ever been. Books are more fantasy than they've ever been. Television programs more fantasy than they've ever been because people want to get out of the real world and live in a fantasy world. That's a very, very dire kind of reality because it isn't actual reality. It, is, it becomes to them a kind of virtual reality which substitutes for a true hope in the future and it's empty and it's vapid. And it doesn't help the angst of the human heart that fears the future. Uh, in case you didn't know, the world is not going to dissolve because of ozone gas or, or because of environmental crime. Um, if you think we're messing up the planet, wait till you see what Jesus does to it. It is not a permanent planet. It's really a few thousand years old, and when it's done with the purposes of God, He'll take it right out of existence, and every bit of this universe will melt like, like fervent heat, like an atomic implosion. Your, your people need to know what the Bible says about the second coming. Our Lord stood there on the Mount of Olives, looked back at the, the temple uh, of Jerusalem uh, at the end of his earthly ministry with his disciples, and he talked about the fact that not one stone would be left on another, it would all come down. And then he launched into that incredible sermon, his last great sermon, Matthew 24 and 25, on his return. 
And, and that has to be in the core of our ministry to the saints. You don't need to be confused about it. It's crystal clear. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, you have the rapture of the church in chapter 4. You have the day of the Lord in chapter 5. In the book of Revelation, you have the church in chapters 2 and 3. All of a sudden, you go to heaven. The war machine of God is grinding up and ready to roll. The war machine breaks loose. You have the tribulation on earth, but never again is the church mentioned. The tribulation runs through till the return of Christ at the end of a seven-year period in which Christ comes back, judges the ungodly, gathers the saints into His kingdom, reigns for a thousand years. When it's over, the destruction of the universe, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. That's the book of Revelation. And the only way you could miss that is if you just didn't believe it. Our Lord is coming, and He's coming to judge, and He's coming to rescue His people, and He's coming to reign. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of identification or union with Christ, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of divine revelation in Scripture, and the doctrine of restoration and the glory of Christ, all important pillars that should make up a large part of our emphasis in the church. They need to see the church from election to glory, right? From beginning to end. The fact that the Lord ordained it in the beginning and He will bring it all to glory in the end. They need to have a sweeping understanding of redemptive purpose as God has revealed it in His Word. This is the true understanding of the church. And those are the pillars in the foundation. So if you're going to be faithful to proclaim the essence of the church and help people understand what it is that they're a part of, these are, in my judgment, the cardinal truths that you must proclaim. And the Bible talks about these things over and over and over and over in passage after passage, so you'll be cycling through these realities all the time. And you need to be convinced about those doctrines with clarity and conviction. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we are grateful that you have laid out your plan in the Scripture, but beyond that, we're grateful that you have made us a part of it. What can we say to such grace, such undeserved kindness and mercy and love toward us unworthy sinners that you would select us before the foundation of the world, choose us for eternal glory. Choose us even to reign with Christ in this world. Choose us to return with Him in His glorious coming. Choose us to live in eternal rest and eternal bliss as the bride of Your beloved Son. Lord, help us to be faithful as we minister to the church, as we minister to those that belong to You. Of course, to preach the gospel so that those who are chosen can hear and believe, and then to lead them, understanding that they are the very bride of Your beloved eternal Son. Give us that love for the church that we may willingly pour our whole life out for them, the very ones you love and for whom you gave your life. Give us love for the church and love for the truth that can mark our whole life of ministry 
so that we can see what you will do when we are faithful. Thank you for these days together. Make this a special conference today, and we pray for the Shepherds Conference to come, that it would exceed even our our highest hopes and expectations. For your glory, we pray. Amen.